This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Lightning Round. Lightning Round. Lightning Round. And... Lightning Round. Choose your hero. Push your luck. Build colossal combos. If you believe that games should have dwarves, the dwarves should roll dice, and the true camaraderie is hollering cheers and sharing a beer, then Dice Miner is for you. Dice Miner is a tabletop game about drafting the dice you covet, adding them to your hoard, and pushing your luck to score the most points. Published and kickstarted by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll a bag full of custom dice down a 3D mountain, then take turns drafting them off. Build straights to score. Collect the most treasure, then double your profit. Avoid dragons and cave-ins or hoard tools to protect yourself. Reroll dice to push your luck. And don't forget the beer. Find Dice Miner on Kickstarter beginning May 26th or go to atlas-games.com backslash Dice Miner to sign up for a launch email in advance. Dice Miner, because every gamer loves dice. Hey, Ken. Hey, Robin. Look at the top of your script. Is there is there a number at the top of your script for this show? Is 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 that a number, Robin? It has so many so many zeros. It has. It is a number. It's it's a it's two zeros, and before that number is a four because this is our four hundredth episode. And folks, Ooh. you know what that means? It's time for a bunch of lightning round. Uh, but before we get to that, I thought a little uh, a retrospective uh, look uh, back. Uh, first of all, though, as is our wont for these uh, anniversary episodes, rather than singling out individual uh, high-tier patrons for praise, we'd like to collectively praise all of you for keeping this podcast alive. We would definitely not have gotten to 400. Not without, a chance uh, in hell yes, would we have done that, no. With, without uh, backer <laughs> support, because at some point we would have done the math on how much time goes into this and gone off to do things that support us. And so now uh, you're supporting us, keeping this podcast going. Yeah. Robin would even have, uh, have politely stopped taking my calls yes. by now. Yeah. So uh, it's time for you all to pat yourselves on the back for making the, uh, the show exist. And in this uh, weird time, if you're uh, able to uh, kick in a few and keep us going, uh, that is extraordinarily helpful. So thank you once again, Patreon backers. And we very much appreciate it. I was looking back at the first episode. The first episode dropped on August 3rd of 2012. The years and the anniversary numbers don't line up, of course, because there's, I, I believe there's 52 uh, weeks in a, a year the last time I checked. And we that is, that do is the, the anniversaries on, yes. yeah. on the 50s. So it's, it's, it would be crass and irresponsible to say that in 2012, uh, nothing bad was happening. The siege of Aleppo by the Assad regime was notably the worst thing in the news at that time. And that was and remains a terrible thing. But other than that, the news was sort of regular. It was like, yeah, Michael like normal times. won a 17th gold medal. Uh, the other top news story of the day was uh, Stevie Wonder and his uh, then wife of 11 years broke up. So oh, the, those were the top stories of the day on the day that our first uh, podcast 
landed on a, a waiting world. And therefore, I guess. And uh, do not ascribe a causal link, by the way. No, no, not at it all. It would have been even worse without our podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, the time machine, uh, what, you, you can't imagine what terrible timelines that, uh, that we've uh, not averted. good. Not good. Yes. And, and by we, I mean you. Yeah. Well, it's the Canadian we. I knew what it meant. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the American. <laughs> the, the topics we covered in the first episode, uh, there was a brand new spanking exciting game called Knights Black Agents, which you, you donned one of your many hats to talk about. Mm, what a good game that must have been. Talked about the Continuum Convention in the UK, which I just returned from. We talked about the relationship between GMing style and... Uh, game design, and uh, even before the days of backers, or even before uh, any episodes landed, somehow we solicited some questions, and that was a, an Ask Ken and Robin segment. And then finally, we wound up uh, with a consulting occultist, and we looked at the Golden Dawn, because uh, if you're going to start talking about that subject, what better to have started with than the Golden Dawn? Where better to start than with uh, William Butler Yates and his low-life friends? And of course, we've alluded to the Golden Dawn uh, many times uh, since. We've alluded to Knights Black Agents many times since. We've gone to a lot of different conventions. And uh, uh, we've also thought a lot about game designing and GMing. So I suppose at this point, we could just recycle most of the topics from the first yeah, year. Yeah, just start over. And we would have different things to say about them. And few people would notice. But rather, Ken, I think it's about time for us to uh, draw on the questions that our beloved Patreon backers have supplied us and commence... Our lightning round. round! Daniel Gill asks, if you've just told someone to start with Earth, and they ask you, okay, but where on Earth and when in history would you recommend to start? Start with the part of history and where on Earth you know the best, because that is what is going to immediately present you with cool uh, story hooks, ideas, and etc. because you've already done the reading. Failing that, uh, Shakespeare in London. Robin? Paris in 1895. An odd choice, but strong. Strong yes. nonetheless. Lightning round! Craig Maloney asks, if you could go back in time and redesign a game or setting, assuming you haven't already, Ken, which ones would you like a crack at redesigning? Note, they don't have to be ones you've worked on directly or indirectly. Robin. So I have a choice, uh, but the choice is conditional. And that is, I would tackle Gamma World, but only under the following setup, which is where Hasbro slash uh, Wizards of the Coast decides to do a, a design forum setup where uh, every six months or perhaps every year, a new edition of Gamma World comes out designed by a different designer. And so uh, you would then uh, see the differences in design style on a beloved property that few people actually play. Ah, nice. As a as almost a closet game design system. I have already redesigned Vampire, and I've not redesigned, but co-designed with uh, Call of Cthulhu. So I, uh, if, if I'm going back and fixing stuff, I would probably... You know, since I'm going back in time anyway, uh, let's see if I can make second edition Dungeons & Dragons a game that I would have played. Lightning Round! Uh, Trung Boy asks, which scenario or adventure would benefit most 
from a live action adaptation. Um, benefit in what sense? Obviously, the Dracula dossier would benefit in audience and appreciation from having a live action adaptation as one is being run right now by the beloved, uh, wise Papa Grant on the, I think it's on the WebDM network. Other scenarios that, that maybe don't pop on the page, but pop in play. That's pretty much all scenarios, isn't it, Robin? Well, it is an interesting question because like Village of Hamlet, for example, if you want to do an art movie about a, a rural village where not much happens and at the end some adventurers show up and they ask where the dungeon is and at the end the uh, people in the rural community point to the thing up on the hill and then they wander off. Uh, that could be like a you know, nice Eastern European art movie there. Exactly. I was going to say experimental German film, Village of Hamlet. Yes. Uh, if, if the hobby continues to uh, grow and it's properties become big, then you would assume, oh, well, it'd have to be something from Ravenloft or whatever, something that has that sort of brand cachet that would get people into theaters, even if they don't know it, they know it's a thing. And so they go to it. Um, now, I'm not necessarily hugely intimately familiar with anything other than masks of Neurolatho, Tap, and Horror on the Orient Express. Those would also be very obvious uh, things, although masks, I would think, would have to be a... Uh, like a prime miniseries. Yep, yep. One of those long, old um, uh, streaming miniseries. Yes. And, of course, Tales from the Loop is an Amazon Prime thing. So, yeah, who knows? That's uh, less unlikely. So, my, my mind, of course, turns to the things that I'm most intimately familiar with, which is... Uh, so, I'm going to refocus this question beyond that to uh, which of my scenarios would uh, best work. Uh, possibly the Fathomless Sleep, since it is uh, the... That's the main Cthulhu... Uh, one-to-one uh, scenario that I wrote for my uh, L.A. detective, uh, Dex Raymond, it might actually be a little too on the nose in terms of being influenced by other classic noir films. Devourers in the Mist, I think, is a, immediately a great uh, self-contained uh, thing that would work in a 90-minute uh, horror situation and would not require a lot of explaining or exposition. Or, uh, you know, if you're feeling more expansive, uh, Shanghai Bullets. Which of your own scenarios would you most like to see adapted? Well, if we're talking um, film, TV, etc., I think, again, the Dracula dossier stands as the sort of thing that, again, would benefit from a big old Amazon Prime Netflix-y type miniseries. Uh, in terms of shorter scenarios, I'm, you know, the, the ones that we made that are cinematic in mind or in origin, I'm thinking the Carmilla sanction, which is just hunting Carmilla through the third man, basically. Um, I think any of our uh, scenarios from uh, Shadows Over Filmland would make a good uh, black and white 76 minute, uh, like the old Masters of Horror that uh, Showtime did. I'm especially fond of your Val Luton uh, tribute, The Night I Died. I think that would uh, be super great. Uh, and then obviously, I think the Black Chateau would work once you got the set design done. Um, and I think that would uh, carry over visually very well as well. Lightning Round! Joshua Hillerup asks, which of your games is best for groups with flaky attendance? Robin? You would uh, think that it might be a drama system, but that's not the case because you need people to uh, follow the emotional thread and it breaks down when there's fewer people. Gumshoe is okay for flakiness because... People just sort of can plug into the case and catch themselves up. And it's like, oh, this officer or this member of the team was off investigating some other lead and now they're back. That's kind of guess. But the best one is Feng Shui because uh, it's just all about 
uh, stringing together a series of three fights. And uh, your characters are all designed to have reasons to get into uh, amazing Hong Kong action uh, cinema-inspired fights. I think probably of the games that I've designed, the one assuming that the GM can end sessions uh, at the end of a story, which is up to the GM, not up to me, I would say that probably Vampire rewards uh, flaky attendance, or doesn't reward it, but it isn't hurt by it, because if a character is suddenly vanished from uh, things and you can't find them, well, they're off hunting or some bad uh, uh, malevolent force, even more malevolent force, has removed them from play. But it's the sort of thing that in the vampire cosmos just happens all the time. It's like, oh, nope, was called to deal with my sire. Sorry. There's lots of stuff on your character sheet to justify why you weren't there on that Monday. Lightning round! Taylor Harless writes, which living celebrities slash public figures are secretly members of the Cut-Ups? The Cut-Ups are, of course, a group that I invented for Over the Edge, who are uh, sort of uh, surrealist reality alterers inspired uh, somewhat by William S. Burroughs' uh, Cut-Up method and uh, officially acknowledged ones. They may have retired uh, by now or, or what have you. Uh, it does name Terry Gilliam, and uh, the game writer Doc Cross as uh, cut-ups. Ken, who, who seems to be the, the, the modern uh, heir to that today? I think if you're looking at, I mean, there are people that want, I think there's a lot of people auditioning to be in the cut-ups. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen seems to be trying to be a cut-up, but I think that he's being uh, blackballed by someone. I'm not, you know, I'm going to say who and I'm going to say why, but I feel like he's 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 a, a try-hard cut-up, which is uh, not the kind you want. I mean, in terms of wild banana cut-ups, um, I think Dan Harmon actually began as a cut-up and, and the, the pressure got to him. Maybe I think uh, we're, we're looking at, at a world of wannabes and ex-cut-ups that the actual cut-ups, they've said, how do we make this more surreal and have thrown up their hands, uh, stepped into the occult? Um, I think that the cut-ups today... Uh, have had to readjust their entire orientation because uh, this might get longer than a lightning round question. The uh, idea behind the cut-ups is that the primary uh, threat to is uh, unquestioned order and uh, authority. And uh, certainly the cut-ups would uh, definitely see lots of authoritarianism uh, to want to subvert. But now they're seeing the uh, authoritarians in a way latch onto their strategy of chaos agentry and turn it to their own ends. Yeah, and this so is like that really terrible episode where it turns out it's like, oh, he's a dark reflection of you. It's like where every 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 season Flash has to find another super speedster. Yeah. So now the you know the the heavily armed trolls are appropriating the colorful shirt of all things, Ken. Which that's an aggression we cannot stand. No. And so I think now the cutups are actually have uh, transformed into figures of light and grace. And so uh, uh, Mariah Carey uh, could be uh, a cutup. Another uh, I think likely person might be uh, Chrissy Teigen. Uh, so I think uh, look. Look to the light bearers. Uh, Maria Bamford, I think, uh, may be a, uh, a cut up today. I think Taylor Swift, if you're looking for exciting uh, female celebrities, uh, her romantic life certainly seems like a cut up uh, operation in progress. And then she certainly is is bearing as much light as her tiny little shoulders can stand. So maybe who can say? They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet 
from Gumshoe Master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King Role-Playing Game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimond, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. Lightning Round! Noel Warford asks, If you were American students in the Belle Epoque Paris, what deuced peculiar business inspired you to investigate the King in Yellow, Robin? So, so Noel, you, you used up your, your shot here on a question, at least from my point of view, is the most obvious one of all, which is clearly I was responsible for the creation of a cursed book. Perhaps a beautiful <laughs> cursed book with a, the best slipcase had ever been created. And perhaps it, it's, you know, no measly one slim volume of, shall we say, closet drama, but rather four entire books of which, you know, you got to catch them all. So undoubtedly, I was uh, re- responsible for some bad publication decisions. I think for me, the, 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 the fun way to do that is, uh, that uh, my art student arrives in Paris in 1895 uh, because he was summoned there by his friend, Robert W. Chambers. And when he gets there, no one's heard of him. And there's only one painting of his hanging in a bar room in Giverny, and it isn't even in his style. And so I'm sort of the Holly Martin stumbling around in this Yellow King setting, uh, trying to find out what happened uh, to Robert W. Chambers. I think that would be some deuced peculiar business and fun meta stuff in my own particular idiom. Friedrich Bjarnson asks, what did Ken do with his time machine to stop steampunk ancient Greece from happening? Well, I know why you would do this, uh, but but uh, how, I guess, is the question. Well, I mean, the, the, the smarty pants answer is I showed uh, Apamea, the wife of uh, King Sel- Seleucus, later Emperor King Seleucus, how dorky her husband would look in a top hat and goggles. And so she said, <laughs> nope, we're not having it. We're not having it. And used... Her considerable royal foot uh, put it down. Uh, her daughters married into all the royal families of the Hellenistic era. And they all said, no, put the goggles down. We're not doing that. We're not messing around with that stuff. 
Just stick to elephants. Elephants is where it's at. That's the fun stuff. Now, uh, because of this format, I also got in a time machine to prevent uh, steampunk ancient Greece. And what I did is I approached Aristotle and I said, look, if you're not careful, there's going to be a genre which is defined initially from fashion statements. And then uh, people try to write a genre around a uh, style of made up costuming. And as soon as Aristotle heard that, he got to work. And of course, he was an influential person. He was a, a, a mentor. Uh, and uh, and he nipped that in the bud. Yeah, well, thank goodness. Lightning round! Brian asks, assuming someone doesn't have time to learn about sympathetic monsters, how would you quickly set up a creature as grumpy but fun? Robin? So, in order to make uh, a sympathetic monster that the characters don't immediately try to kill, uh, I think you have to introduce that much earlier in the narrative than you normally would for uh, a typical and horror you sort of come to sympathize with the monster over the course of it. You know, King Kong and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Initially, they're scary, and then you realize the humans are worse. Um, and so uh, here, I think that you would introduce some terrible humans that the player characters are already uh, have reason to dislike or quickly develop a reason to dislike. And then they discover that these terrible rivals are going and hunting something. And maybe you think, oh, they're just going to a dungeon to steal stuff. Let's go uh, uh, get that stuff away from them because it'd be much better in, in our backpacks than theirs. And then as you get there, you realize that they have captured and are tormenting uh, the fantasy equivalent of uh, Kong or the creature. I think if you're uh, pressed for time and speed, jump right into Bathos and Big Eyes. So when they show up at the uh, at the uh, mysterious uh, spot in the woods or, or whatever it is, and they see the 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 bugbear, or the Sasquatch, or whatever, and they look around to see what it's doing, and you give it the the whole Eeyore. Oh, I suppose you've come to kill me now, and then. You turn and he looks at you with his big bugbear eyes. And he says, I was just trying to build a chair and it turns out my hands are too big. I can't make the chair work. That's just my kind of day. Can't build a chair. Going to be killed by a hobbit. Oh, that's awful. And then <laughs> uh, the, hopefully the players fall into that. I'm not sure the player characters don't want to kill this, this guy. <laughs> well, you know, if they want to kill Eeyore, then what, do you, what can you do? Eeyore is dead. But... Uh, <laughs> You, you got to have grumpy uh, if you're going to have grumpy, but fun. That's just the way the world works. Lightning round! The armchair adventurers ask, when you can't start with Earth, where's the next best place? I think probably if you can't start with Earth, I think maybe in terms of the next best place, the bridge of the Enterprise or some other super familiar place that everyone grocks instantly. So a galaxy a long uh, time ago, far, far away. Uh, if you've got a, a, a particular batch of players, maybe the canals of ancient Mars, who can say just something that everyone can snap onto. So you don't have to read a whole book or figure out, Oh, uh, are there, are there elves in this? I, I don't know. Um, just, just start with something, you know, and, uh, warp factor two, Robin. Since you gave the most correct answer, which is pick a, uh, non earth pop culture property. Everybody knows the second best answer is pick a place that you have only lightly sketched out uh, that has a general genre that everybody will get and then invite them to an act of shared creation, whether that is uh, actually sitting down and using a, a world creation tool like Microscope or uh, just uh, creating it on the fly with the collaboration of the players. And therefore, uh, that 
get you away from the here's a hundred thousand words of exposition about this world thing that the only stuff you ever bring up is the stuff that you uh, need as you go along and therefore explain as you go lightning round tom allman asks what would faster than light drive powered by the mythos and maintained by cultists look like robin besides glowing blue what would it look like it would look non-euclidean ken oh strong i think it would just be a star-shaped stone with weird writing on it it would hang in the middle of a of a trapezohedral chamber and that's what it would look like and it would look like not a faster than light drive so that's the answer alternately it could look like a uh, hound of tindalos with a glowing hdmi cable stuck in it lightning round derek mcmullen asks uh, what is the best John Dixon Carr novel to start with? I want to hear the answer to this as well and might even go read it. Might even go read it. I think that uh, for the sort of, um, uh, it, this is not the best John Dixon Carr novel, which is uh, The Burning Court, and that is amazing, but it is not immediately characteristic of his work. I would start with, or I would advise someone to start with, The Three Coffins, in which Gideon Fell, uh, the, be the best of his detectives, delivers a chapter-long lecture on the locked room method by which he sh uh, John Dixon Carr shows off and says, oh, I came up with 30 other ideas for this plot, but I'm not using them. And uh, if, if you can get through that, then you are a John Dixon Carr acolyte for life. Lightning round! Ross Ireland asks... Do you use any of the cool wooden gaming accessories like dice trays, vaults, or towers like the cool kids are using? Robin, Ross Ireland asks if you're cool. So Owen Stevens has recently been uh, uh, writing a series of uh, uh, harsh facts about uh, the role-playing freelancing trade on his uh, Twitter account. And one of the things that he mentions, which is that if you do this for a living, you probably can't afford that stuff. And uh, <laughs> certainly a, one of those giant tables. Not only could I not afford that, I do not afford living quarters that it could possibly fit in. Um, so the answer is my use of AIDS is very utilitarian. Uh, first of all, I'm usually working on a game that hasn't been published yet, so there are no uh, AIDS for it. And uh, I also try to get dice rolling out of some of my games as much as I can. So no need for a dice tower for Gumshoe. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be, be, be anticlimactic, as we say. So I, I use some... Uh, some online uh, accessories. I have a die rolling app uh, that I use for, uh, you know, when when it's time to do something F20-ish. But uh, nope, I'm pretty spare on that front. When we are meeting face-to-face -face, as opposed to over the internet where we are using the die rolling app on Slack or on Roll20, one of my players has lovely trays. They're round trays. They're about um, maybe a little, like eight inches across, something like that. Uh, they got felt on the bottom, wood sides. Uh, they're basically just uh, dog dishes, really, or, or cat dishes, except with felt on the bottom and made of wood. And that's what I roll dice in. So uh, if that is a cool game gaming accessory, yes. If it is not, then no. Lightning round! James Kiley asks, this is probably too broad, but... What's a common historical mistake that call slash Trail of Cthulhu GMs make that they can easily stop? I can think of a bunch of things that are, they deliberately leave out and should continue to keep out, which I might get to when it's my turn, but can. Mistakes that they should and can stop? I, I think that the one, the, the, the one most common mistake that is made in Trail and Call era gaming that when fixed makes the game better rather than worse is to remember that telephones are not private. 
There is no such thing as a private telephone line. Even if you're in a big city, you've still patched it through the switchboard where a legitimately living human being is uh, listening for the end of your call. So she usually can switch it around when you're done and maintain call accurately. Certainly, if you're in a small town, there is one switchboard operator who knows everybody's business or the and they may be in the in the local hotel or they may just be at the post office, whatever it is. The knowledge that uh, phone calls are not private is a gigantic, beautiful story generator and also makes the game feel more accurate because when you're on the line and you're talking and uh, you just hear the operator cut in and say, uh, that'll be another uh, uh, two minutes or whatever, that'll remind you. And if the operator cuts in and, and sounds like she's choking to death because you've said one of the nine deadly words of Agathoth, well, that's cool too. Yeah, because all the ones I can think of are that they're being left out on purpose, like the fact that social mores are a lot more constraining and that the typical weird behavior that player characters get up to would much more quickly be intercepted by uh, authorities and just uh, neighbors and pillars of the community um, or uh, other things that are just kind of depressing, like really that only a handful of people who were not Stalinists were opposed uh, to uh, the Nazi regime in the 30s in America until the very last minute. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of that stuff is uh, uh, either slows down play or is uh, introducing uh, even more depressing reality than uh, uh, people are already aware of. Lightning Round! Liz and Siski ask, what dramatic hero in TV or film do you think could best be replaced with an iconic hero of the same name to improve the story, Robin? And you don't get to say James Bond now, because <laughs> <laughs> I think Liz and Siski mean a character who is intended to be a dramatic hero from the jump. Well, in that case, I can't also cite Star Trek Discovery <laughs> uh, because I'd also really like that show more if uh, the, the lead was an iconic hero. Um, I'm not. Uh, what show could possibly? I, I can't imagine a, a thing that was supposed to be dramatic and is dramatic that would. I, I guess the question is who would then have a spin-off series where they fight crime? Uh, I guess you know. I guess the example of that is Lou Grant, where he went from being a character on a comedy show. And then was in a newspaper, serious newspaper procedural. So I don't know. Uh, you could have Captain Holt from Brooklyn Nine Nine solving supernatural mysteries. I, I just can't actually think of a thing that would actually work and not be a joke. Yeah, I think that the trick is it has to be a dramatic hero in which the drama was very unsatisfying. And so my answer is uh, the alleged protagonist, Will Travers, from the canceled but not before its time television show Rubicon, which if he'd been an iconic hero would actually have been a great show because he would have actually had, I don't know, Robin, external conflict. That would be fun. Um, so I, I feel like if you took any of those sort of gravel mouthed slack badly written, basic, or now streaming television uh, series, and you just said, what if, hear me out, the main character is already bought into it being a TV show and does something interesting, oh, I don't know, every 44 minutes. What do you think of that? I think that so many shows could be improved by that. Um, uh, so I, I, I would say Will Travers, who is intended to be a dramatic hero, it's just that he is neither dramatic nor heroic. It's just not a very good show because there's no uh, there's no conflict. So that's what I say. Lightning round. Lars Gottlieb asks, "What is the best fat loot that has made an appearance in a game you've been in?" 
Uh, and by binning, I'm going to have to allow game mastering as well. Yeah, you almost have to at this point. I uh, Most recently, I think the, the, the loot that I'm proudest of having introduced is the cornucopia that was on Noah's Ark, with which Noah fed all the animals and people. Because uh, my player characters wound up with a skyship, and they hated, hated, hated having to land every three days to take on food and water. They don't like dealing with people, certainly official people who can maybe injure their skyship. So uh, they were like, what can we do to solve that? They cast a divination to find a cornucopia. The nearest one was sure enough. They're on Mount Ararat and they had to go get uh, into Noah's Ark and, and fight all the stuff that was left over uh, and, and get a cornucopia. So that's, I think that's my funnest, fattest loot that I've provided in uh, recent memory. Robin? Um, my memory goes uh, way back to not recent, to the, the very first uh, game I ran for anybody, the D&D game that I ran for my, uh, this might have even been late grade school or, or possibly early high school, uh, but it was the thing that caused everyone to realize that there was story and continuity in role-playing, which is I introduced a set of uh, a fabulous armor uh, and it was the uh, the armor of Klanomyth. And so initially it was just uh, super buff armor. And uh, one of the uh, players became uh, super fascinated with that. And that became uh, the first player driven motivation, which was, is there a shield of Klanomyth as well? So he acquired uh, two or three different armor pieces of this legendary hero. And then Klanomyth came back to reclaim his stuff. Oh. And thus continuity and an antagonist and story arising out of the core activity of D&D all semi-spontaneously happen. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Lightning Round! Philip Masters asks, Can you suggest an artistic movement prior to the symbolists who may have had extensive access to the Dreamlands and who could thus be used for an alternative Dreamhounds campaign? Robin. The challenge with that is that it isn't until the late 19th century that you get artists who aren't basically precursors of the symbolists. You have people early on in the 19th doing the stuff that the symbolists then picked up on and then are retroactively considered part of that movement. Up until that point, everybody is pretty much using clear uh, Greek and Roman uh, mythology 
or uh, of course, Christian iconography as their basis of painted art. So you could do the Mannerists because they're weird, distorted and anatomies uh, have uh, something of a hallucinatory quality to them. But uh, then you would be uh, journeying back into uh, into the New Testament, basically, uh, mm-hmm. into the dreamlands. And that, uh, I think, uh, people would, uh, it would certainly be weird, but I think it would be uh, not the kind of weird that almost anybody is looking for. I'm I'm here for Dreamhound Caravaggio, though, Robin. I'm I'm all over that. That's exciting. That's better than my answer, which is the Pre-Raphaelites, because I figured that was the obvious answer. Uh, your Dreamlands certainly take on a certain Arthurian tinge to them, but uh, if you're talking about a group with a recognizable shared aesthetic, a lush imagist action and enough of a uh, incestuous coterie of, of backstabbing and petty arguments that you can drive uh, earthbound play. Uh, plus uh, they're uh, kissing cousins in, or in some case, literal cousins to uh, uh, John Polidori, the guy that uh, invented vampires. So you got a strong possibility with the beginnings of modern horror. I feel like the pre-Raphaelites might make a, a fun uh, Dreamhounds activity. Uh, yeah. They certainly have all the personal drama you need and, uh, but they do fit into that rubric of, they're already symbolists under a different name. Well, they, they predate the symbolist movement symbolists. So they answer the letter of Phil's question yes. without necessarily uh, uh, helping anyone very much, unless they wanted to run a weird Pendragon inflected game of the dreamlands. In which case you're welcome, everybody. There you go. Lightning, Lightning round. round. Sean McAuliffe asks Knights, black agents, 1970s Berlin. What are the Soviets doing with vampires? I think uh, the Soviets in Berlin, they're using the vampires to patrol the wall. I think that the vampires are uh, who the Soviets have basically given the governance of East Berlin into the hands of, and they keep control of them through whatever uh, special expedition methodology was handed down from Catherine the Great's time, or just by having, you know, the the, the body of Orlok, you know, uh, on ice somewhere in a a Soviet airbase, and they're ready to stab him and kill all the vampires if they don't do what the Soviets want. Um, I think that the, you, you make the vampires sort of the the um, uh, symbolic stand-in for the East German government, although the East German government was uh, is certainly terrible and awful. They're not, what do I want to say? They're not uh, iconic. They're not camera-ready in the way that vampires are, even if vampires don't show up on camera. It just looks cooler to have a, a shadowy bat form patrolling the Berlin Wall than a bunch of guys in itchy gray wool overcoats patrolling the Berlin Wall. Robin? Um, well, I'll supply the other part of that, which is what are the vampires trying to do? And they're just trying to hang out with slash protect David Bowie and Iggy Pop. <laughs> because that, that blood tastes like nothing else on Earth. <laughs> Well, I think also it's like you guys are going to develop the cool style that we're going to want to adopt in about that 10 years. So. We can finally stop dressing like Lord Byron. Uh, in fact, I would think possibly one of the, you know, that they don't want to drink uh, Iggy Pop or Bowie for precisely the reasons uh, that we, you know, that stuff's adulterated. There's there's <laughs> not necessarily a lot of uh, blood in there. Um, yeah, well. and, and of course, famously, there's a year of the 70s in Berlin that David Bowie has no memory of. So Very that's strong. the year that you're playing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Lightning round! Ludovic Shabant asks, Ken always says, start with Earth, but he doesn't say when to stop. What's the pros and cons of keeping it recognizable, at least to the historians in the group, versus running all the way to the Glorantha's and Tecamels? 
those are two entirely different questions, Robin. Answer whichever one you'd rather, I guess. Well, it does get at one truth, which is that a significantly obscure historical period, which I think to most people these days is any time really before they were born, <laughs> um, requires a <laughs> Robin, lot of exposition. That's a Ken statement. Yes. Uh, I, I think you kind of need to find people, certainly with Glorantha, it, it runs much better if you can round up a bunch of people who are already invested in it. So I think to step a bit back from the question, it is find a setting that everybody is equally interested in and already aware of, or equally willing to uh, learn about. And uh, I, otherwise, I would loop back to my earlier question of if deep setting exploration is not everybody's cup of tea, which it often is not, I'd go with something much bearer. I would say uh, never stop starting with Earth. Always, uh, always start with Earth. And recognizable is a question that entirely comes down to table style and the people at the table. Um, I've run a lot of games for a lot of University of Chicago trained uh, historians and folklorists and whatnot. So I am spoiled rotten. I grant that. But also... Everybody loves cowboys, um, and nobody minds discovering more cool stuff about cowboys. If people are interested in the bit, they will follow you into the premise, and the fact that they don't have to read The Forgotten Realms is a bonus. Uh, and by everybody, there's probably a whole bunch of people who don't want to think about cowboys. Well, all right, fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pirates, then. Whatever. Oh, uh, see, that's the... I think this is a subject for another full segment of... Uh, uh, how real do you want history uh, to be? And that's another complete subject. So let's just say lightning round. Steve Dempsey asks, politics seems to be turning back into religion at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. If you were starting a new cult, what would it be, Robin? Well, uh, ethically, you should not, not start a cult. I would <laughs> True. Point that I agree. Out, uh, that it's inherently uh, exploitative. So I think if I were to start a cult, it would be, well, obviously have to be a cult of personality. I would want a balance, a union of opposites. So I would need another uh, a figure to uh, to balance my various qualities. And uh, I think uh, I would look for the most uh, sort of intimate form of uh, communing uh, with my uh, hypnotized subjects. So I would I would use the auditory form, uh, and I would set up some sort of fundraising mechanism whereby people would tithe to me. So I'm, the rest of it, I'm not sure of. I haven't worked out the rest of the details, but those are the rough outlines. Well, I mean, here's the, here's the thing, right? Once you've got the basic structure set up, Robin, you can just sort of try off different things, maybe four or five at a time, and and see if people are more or less interested in any one of them. That's yeah, what sort I would of suggest. A/B testing yeah. for, uh, exactly. for different That's doctrines. Standard. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there'd have to be garb. Come to think of it. Uh, yeah, cer ceremonial garb, ceremonial garb, something with a with with glyphs and symbols and strange phrases from the scriptures. Yeah, you know how it works. Yeah, you'd want to yeah. um, little uh, in signals that you would give people to show uh, things that they understand that others do not. A, a sort of a gnosis, something that invites conversation, so that people come up and ask you about your shirt, and then you induct them into the cult. They could also cynically exploit the awesomeness of cats uh, in part of the merchandise. So that yeah, I think yeah, I think yeah. we need to workshop this some more. But I, I absolutely, think can, let's yeah. let's get together and uh, think about that sometime. Um, I would uh, borrowing a, a line from the great Tom Lehrer. I would start a cult that uh, focuses on the insecurities of the rich. Lightning round. Ed Sizemore asks, "How large is Ken's library?" Has Ken ever forgot a book he owned and bought a duplicate copy by mistake? 
I can answer that one. Yes. How does Ken keep track of what books he owns? Uh, my library, as far as I know, is around 16,000 books. I do not know because I have not. And this is to uh, foreshadow the answer to uh, question three. I have not yet uh, in, invested the time or money in getting the library thing app in which people track their books. That's because the regular library thing app, Robin, and this is something I can just get off my chest here. The free one only goes up to 5,000 books. So you have at least 5,001. But like, I mean, why, why would you even call that a library thing? That's like a shelf thing. That's, that's ridiculous. So, uh, so I have to pay for the, the, the lifetime membership and that, you know, suddenly that's money and the rest of it. So no, I haven't bought the library thing app and, and spent the time doing it. But my guess is 16,000 books. Robin sadly is a witness to me having forgotten I owned a book and bought a duplicate copy by, let's not say mistake. Let's say by unknown intention to give that copy to somebody else. We've even had one show up in multiple episodes of Ken's bookshelf. We did. It was very exciting. And uh, how do I keep track of what book I own? Uh, well, increasingly poorly seems to be the answer, uh, given that occasionally you have a duplicate Ken's bookshelf uh, item. Um, well, mostly it's, it's easy enough to happen, right? Because you may yeah. lovingly touch and, and uh, stroke the covers of a book and then put it back because it's too expensive and then not remember whether you bought it or not. Right. Or worse yet, you bought the book, said, this will be a great book to read when I'm doing Project X, shelved it. And then when Project X comes up, you forget that you have already got that book and you find a copy of it. Maybe you find it uh, remaindered or used or in a, in a, in a, at a good price somewhere. And you think, oh, what a steal. This book, which for some reason I know is important. I must own. That's just, it's just standard stuff that happens. Yeah. The books are basically shelved broadly by topic and then alphabetically within that. But at this, at this juncture, anyone who's uh, looked at the, at the Pelgrane um, uh, video series has seen that my office library is not what I think a objective observer would call fully shelved. So who can say lightning round Lauberfin asks, why is preparedness a general ability, not an investigative ability? Robin, it's your baby. Defend its cuteness. Uh, because the solution to the mystery is never, what do I have in my backpack right now? Lightning round! Andrew uh, Reichart asks, is it a good idea to restore the Greek gods to primacy? Now? No. <laughs> in my Hellenistic campaign? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I would say that the thing about the Greek gods is they have high explanatory power of why the world is messed up. Yeah, they they, they nail the theodicy question. Absolutely. Right. Now, <laughs> since the world is already is messed up, um, that might Im imply that uh, perhaps they never lost primacy or some other similar group of uh, ultra powerful squabbling children is uh, is fighting it out. If you need to have big supernatural beings with influence on us, that's Still a pretty good explanation for what's happening. Kelly Fisher asks, how do each of you start a flashback for a heist game or a particularly good role of preparedness? Robin? I quickly sketch it out uh, for the player involved and uh, ask them a question. So uh, I might say, well, uh, this goes back to your uh, time during the, uh, the war with, uh, with the old man, with William Stevenson. Uh, you're in Belgium and you do something that uh, proves your awesomeness and introduces you to a member of the Gestapo. Uh, describe what's happening. Yeah, I, I think that that's basically the, the thing you give the player a reason to buy in. 
and you count on their instinct for self-aggrandizement and drama. And so you can say, like you say, lay out a memory flashback, or you can say, oh my God, uh, that preparedness role uh, was so great. Uh, give us a little Joel Schumacher scene of how you lovingly packed that rocket launcher into your tuxedo and uh, and tell us how that happened. Um, just, you know, trust the player uh, by and large. That's what uh, the flashback is there to is, is to sort of involve them into the story deeper and give them the sense that the story continues past the table at that moment. Lightning round! VR Weather asks, what is each of your pick for most underrated cryptid? And which of them would win in a fight? Ken? Um, I think that, uh, I mean, many of my favorite cryptids are cryptids that are not necessarily underrated, except that people don't think that they're as amazing as I do. So Mothman, obviously, is the greatest cryptid of all time, but I don't know that it's underrated. I think people universally agree it's a top five cryptid. So I, I don't think Mothman is my answer there. I think I would say my most underrated cryptid is the Mongolian death worm. Because aside from that name, nobody does anything with it. They say Mongolian deathworm, and then that sort of like freezes their brain and they don't have the whole rest of that, you know, mysterious uh, purple Gobi desert action going on. I, I feel like the Mongolian deathworm just is, is there to look good and then shuffled off the stage. They're like the, the celebrity kill at the beginning of a horror movie. Robin? Well, I guess the, the literally underrated cryptid would be the coelacanth, which, when discovered alive, was bounced right out of the cryptid category. Yeah, it was so uncrypted that now it's yeah. sort of a, a punchline, not even a cryptid. Exactly. Um, but for actual still extant, uh, non-extant cryptids, I, I sort of have a, a soft spot for the Michele and Bembwe. Yeah. It would be super cool uh, to imagine a... Uh, a little mini brontosaur uh, still uh, existing, and it would certainly win in a fight against the Mongolian death worm. Yeah, it would. It would death or no death. It's just a worm, right? Going to get stomped on. Now it doesn't want to fight the Mongolian death worm, but I think the Mongolian death worm is sort of like the Pomeranian of cryptids and would antagonize it and get stomped. On. Right. It would just anger it with its Mongolian deathness. I, I like that you you have the like the most Canadian cryptid of all. <laughs> it's just. It's just like, well, all right, I'm just here eating yeah. jungle. Do, 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 do. No, not that he could survive here. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe, maybe in the in the rainforests uh, along the coasts of British Columbia, you have a a Mokela Memembe. I, I suppose that they were endothermic; they weren't just all yeah. in. Uh, right. Yeah. Lightning round. Jake B asks, sirs, which lesser known H.P. Lovecraft story deserves more attention, and why? Robin, are there these days even like? Lesser known HP Lovecraft stories, right? Even, even the collaborations have been pulled apart and, uh, examined, uh, uh beyond all, uh, recognition. What's the collaboration with the, with Yig in it? Curse of Yig. Curse of Yig. That would be my pick. It's because it's genuinely creepy and it's, it's sort of off canon. And it's, and it's absolutely the best of the revision stories, I think, by a long chalk. Plus, it's sort of Mopasanti. It's not as Lovecrafty as other Lovecraft stuff. My choice, because as you say, Robin, everything is, has basically been sifted. I have to cheat and go into letter transcriptions. There's a, a long letter that Lovecraft wrote about a dream that he had when he was a Roman soldier in Spain. And you can find it online under the general title, The Very Old Folk. And I, it's, it's a good story. It's good fun. It's historical. It has a very creepy ending. And it came to him in a dream. So that's all good stuff. And I think that although, of course, as you said, every jot and tittle of Lovecraft is getting the microscope. But I think the very old folk is one that maybe even your super Lovecraftians don't know as well as they think they do. And you can go back and dig up uh, more cool stuff in it. 
are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. Lightning, Lightning round. round! Andrea Coletta poses a question which has a clear right answer. Lucio Fulci versus Mario Bava. Who wins and why? Mario Bava because he is a million times better than Lucio Fulci. Uh, that's why. I guess if Lucio Fulci, like, surprises him by spraying fake blood in his eyes or something. <laughs> yeah, he might win at poker or something. Yeah, but right. I believe we're being asked about filmmaking. Or in a saber fight, and, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Mario Bava is uh, perhaps the uh, master of unnatural, surreal uh, lighting and set design in horror and the master of mood. And Lucio, Lucio Fulci is the, has a couple of good movies that seem kind of good by accident and exist by essentially subverting everything you could possibly think fits in a conventional narrative. So uh, he can't even exist without people creating the structure of conventional narrative uh, in, in order to disrupt. And uh, Mario Bava, of course, is the uh, king of that in Italian horror. That said, Lucio Fulci has a zombie fight a shark. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Lightning, Lightning round! Nicolaj asks, would you consider Lars von Trier's Antichrist a folk horror film, Robin? No, not enough Morris dancing. <laughs> it's a cosmic horror film. I would say that if there's the threat of Morris dancing, I suppose anything is possible. Um, but having not seen it, I can only say... I have seen a lot of Lars Van Trier. None of it makes me think that he's any good at or even interested in folk horror. And uh, if uh, if it just bad stuff happening in a cabin is not folk horror, that would make a freaking Evil Dead a folk horror film. That's not the case. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I didn't have to revise that. It's not cosmic horror. Even it's just sort of a. It's like Repulsion or uh, sort of a. It's a spiral into madness film. So yeah, not, not folk horror. Even though you would think Talking Fox. But, but no. Nope. Nope. Lightning Lightning round. Round. Uh, John Scheib asks, what did flying boats do to Ken to get him to champion dirigibles as the showcase technology for indicating you're in an alternate world? Uh, they succeeded. Flying boats were super common for like 45 years. They were the standard uh, Pan American clipper. They used to fly them all over the Pacific. Half the airlines in the world used flying boats. They used them a great deal. Um, they're not nearly alternate enough. I mean, they're cool, and uh, we don't use them that much anymore because they're uneconomical. They don't hold enough people to make a trans-Pacific flight worth it anymore. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you can still make money on short hops, I'll bet if you went to French Polynesia, there's flying boats on business right now. You go to Tahiti and you have to book a flying boat to the next island over. Robin? Right. And, of course, it wasn't you who started the dirigible thing. No, it was not. I just identified it. Yeah. I'm like Newton. I didn't build gravity. 
I just found it. It's in The Watchmen. It's in Fringe. And I haven't done a, a, I think Jess Nevins could probably do a deep dive and tell us exactly when that happened. Might be Watchmen. But it's it's uh, we're just spotting the thing happening. It started with uh, Fritz Leiber's uh, short story, Catch That Zeppelin. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Lightning, Lightning round. Hyperlexic asks, what director not named Cohen will make the definitive movie encapsulating our current era? Robin? Uh, there's an error in this question, which is what director has already made the definitive movie encapsulating our current era? And that is Jim Jarmusch, uh, who made The Dead Don't Die. Uh, which is all about standing by, waiting for something uh, awful to happen that uh, all of your hipster charm uh, has uh, has no effect over. Ken, your answer? And I also will say that uh, the film to encapsulate our era has already been made. It was made in 1957 by Ilya Kazan. It's called A Face in the Crowd. That's our era. Screaming and panic and idiocy. And in fairness, it's most eras. But Ilya Kazan was sort of a, if this goes on, and we're like, ah, it's going on. What you going to do? So there we go. There's one problem with the, with that being the movie of our era, which is that the uh, the demagogue figure is uh, revealed by uh, getting caught on a uh, a hot mic, and uh, that ends their menace. That's a, that's just the the happy ending that was tacked on by the studio, Robin. Lightning, Lightning round. Dice Geeks asks. Why did Time Incorporated have Ken sink Atlantis? Uh, because they were competing. They they had uh, their their crystal magics and their uh, uh, time spheres flying all over the place, doing things. Plus, uh, since Plato invented them, they were a bunch of uh, fascists. We just didn't like them. We didn't like them at all. Fortunately, getting Zeus drunk is super easy. Right, and and there's all the cannibalism. Well, yeah. If I if I'm here ending every cannibal, oh hey, I am. Anyway, yeah, uh, cannibalism also uncool. Lightning round. round. Jim McCarthy asks: When constructing a gumshoe mystery, what are the pros and cons of driving the story via the mechanics, specifically specific investigative abilities? Robin, the con against doing that is that it's a brain bender. That maybe uh, you can come up with a mystery around. I'm going to use. Okay, so I'm going to randomly pick reassurance, architecture, let's say uh, photography, and of course, forensic entomology. Uh, And then I'm going to wrap a mystery around that. Maybe you can do that, but it's phenomenally difficult. It's um, much easier to uh, weave a coherent narrative and then uh, attach the mechanics to it than the other way around. It's... uh, it's just organic that way. And I would say the pros is that if you have a player character that you know uh, is fond of something, that that's their spotlight thing, that's their signature move, they're there with their big uh, tub of beetles ready to forensically entomologize things, then it is worth it uh, as the GM to make sure that forensic entomology onroads the story and uh, provides a spotlight moment as opposed to being, and this, you're going to laugh, Robin, as opposed to being a sort of a waste of time on the character sheet that no one cares about. Uh, like that would ever happen. So it, it's it's a pro at the table based on the players. This is, of course, true with most things that are pros. But uh, certainly if you're trying to design the mystery de novo, uh, that's doing it exactly backwards. Begin with the mystery and then organically figure out what investigative abilities would lead to it. And ideally, all of them will lead to it because even the smallest mystery is going to disturb uh, flesh-eating beetles. Lightning round! David Radford asks, uh, or rather commands, please name three great things about your counterpart city and why they're great. Uh, extra points if there isn't a parallel of it in your home city. Well, I know I'm going to blow the at least the middle one of those. Right, yeah. I would say, uh, certainly, 
Toronto's donut shops leave Chicago's donut shops gasping in the dust. Uh, even the, I don't say second tier donut shops, because I think they're all first tier. Certainly all the ones I've been to were first tier, but even the, 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 the ones that are not jelly urban donuts are amazingly good donuts. Chicago's, this is how sad things are. Chicago's best donut chain is an import from Los Angeles. I weep. I weep for my city. Um, also, I, I think that uh, Toronto, by and large, has the whole urban governance thing figured out a little better than Chicago does. I'm not going to say more interestingly, but I think that maybe the urbanity is governed a little more. That may be a Canada versus America thing, though. So who can say? And uh, the third great thing about uh, my counterpart city is uh, there is a, and this is something that is true about Chicago, is that uh, I love that Kensington Market neighborhood with all of the sort of ethnic uh, neighborhoods sort of like I don't know if they, if they geographically all point to it, but it seems like that little stretch has got a whole series of really great uh, food options and, and stores, and it, it makes you really feel vibrant and alive and global like a proper city does. Uh, so Ken has an advantage of, over me, which is that he has been to Toronto a number of times, and I've only been to Chicago on a quick business trip where I didn't really see the city. So I'm going to have to zoom out uh, to a more sort of historical things. Uh, one, birthplace of the electric blues. Absolutely. Two, cradle of uh, improv and sketch comedy uh, through Second City. Uh, also there is true. A, a parallel of that in Toronto. There is a Second City Toronto. And most of the people who are famously on the Second City TV show are from the Toronto Second City. And then finally, while I was in Chicago, uh, there was this really interesting uh, food product, which there's a, it's like a big sort of uh, edible bowl with like a tomato casserole inside of it. And I forget what they call it, but it was, it was pretty delicious. I am going to pass in silence over your attempt to make John Stewart relevant. <laughs> Lightning, Lightning round. round. Jacob Borsma asks, what will you miss most about Gen Con in 2020? Uh, and two, what unexpected benefit does the Gen Con cancellation have? Robin. Well, the benefit is that I will get a little more work done. Yeah. And, and more sleep. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, I will, even though I'll be participating uh, in uh, online events, including the Any Awards, I won't lose the time uh, at the, the book ending time for travel. Uh, and I won't uh, be uh, brain dead for the next week after that. Uh, what will I miss most about uh, Gen Con in 2020? The people, of course, uh, the people who I do not want to infect uh, with a sometimes deadly disease. Ken? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly the people is the right answer because we all of us are thinking of even the nicest parts of Indianapolis, he said, uh, are nice because we remember eating breakfast with Jeff Tidball there, not necessarily because they are inherently wonderful places. Um, the, the, the benefits, the same as you said, uh, the, my feet will hurt much less. That's a strong one. I'll, I get to see my cat and wife, both very valuable things. So yeah, it's, it's the time that you get back with different uh, people and cats. Um, but yeah, the, the people, I would say breakfast with Chef Tidball is a strong one. Um, super quality bourbon with Jim Kitchen. That's another thing I'm going to miss pretty much. But, you know, like you say, would probably rather not infect uh, Jeff or Jim or anyone with uh, with the COVIDs. So, you know, cross fingers, we'll be back in Gen Con 2021, making up, having two breakfasts with Chef Tidball, maybe. Lightning round! Rolf Bergstrom asks... Any advice on how to make the gambling general ability worth the price of admission for a Knight's Black Agents PC who's invested a lot of points in this uh, during character creation? The game handles finances quite abstractly, 
and I'm having trouble making gambling tests feel tense or thrilling. Uh, the answer is to make gambling a way to show up and defeat your foes. Uh, Ian Fleming, of course, does that repeatedly in the James Bond novels. Uh, often the James Bond films attempt to do it as well. So gambling is not about a way to raise 500 bucks to buy a gun in the alley, although it's a fun, colorful way to explain why you can buy a gun with a laser sight. Oh, I, I went and I hit a poker game and I made a bunch of money. But I think that gambling, like most things, uh, works when there is an opponent and an opponent you want to see done dirt. Uh, and that can be Lashif, that can be Hugo Drax, that can be uh, the mysterious vampire queen, that can be whoever it is. But uh, gambling should be about the contest. Uh, I recommend watching the Chow Yun fat film God of gamblers. If you want to see how to make nothing but gambling scenes, super exciting, Robin. Yes. Which is part of an entire genre of uh, <laughs> gambling uh, movies that, that, uh, because that was a giant hit. There was a, a yeah. whole subgenre uh, sprung up around that. So you can steal all sorts of things from those. And generally the, uh, the question is, what are you getting from uh, gambling? So you're either gaining entree, right? You're impressing, uh, the uh, the person who you want access to, uh, you're winning someone's trust or you're uh, attracting their attention. Uh, there's some uh, gambling uh, just this week in my gumshoe game. And the whole point was to uh, put uh, a criminal element uh, at their ease and uh, and win trust and, and gain information. Uh, so uh, information access is the big one. Or also sometimes you're trying to uh, have the other person uh, lose all of their uh, money so that they're then uh, in trouble with their confederates and they get bumped off, saves you having to do it, or uh, that you're just uh, causing them uh, some sort of stress or, uh, you know, you get them kicked out of the casino before they can stage the assassination or you just uh, enrage them and get a bonus uh, later when you encounter them because they're still mad at you. Or, you know, of course, as Bond does, it's the old antagonize them so that they uh, uh, kidnap you and, and you wake up in exactly the uh, underground or uh, volcano installation that you were trying to get into all along. Lightning round! Paula Damas asks, we have Stonehenge in Wiltshire. We have Woodhenge at Promelta. What is the coolest third henge to complete the series? Robin? I would say uh, sort of uh, toffee henge. Which uh, could be, you think the obvious place for that would be uh, somewhere in southern England, but I'm going to say it's uh, really near Guelph, Ontario. And I say this merely because people wanted me to make a Guelph, Ontario joke many episodes ago when we were talking about the Guelphs, and I feel that I'm now uh, paying them back. I think that that is an excellent fictive henge. My henge has the advantage of being real. Uh, it is Car Henge, a duplicate of Stonehenge built out of cars in Alliance, Nebraska. Easily the third coolest henge. Lightning round! And finally, uh, Michael Bonneval asks, where do you fall on the sandwich alignment chart? And uh, this is where we wind up sort of describing a meme to you. And so this is a, a chart that's all about uh, what will you accept uh, under the category of sandwich. So there's uh, everything from radical sandwich anarchy, which is like a Pop-Tart as a sandwich, to a structurally neutral ingredient rebel, an ice cream taco as a sandwich. So basically, the things on these two axes are what goes in the sandwich and the form of the sandwich. And I think, Ken, uh, I have a feeling we're going to have the same answer, maybe, and definitely an unsurprising answer. Maybe? So maybe. I'm a hardline traditionalist uh, when it comes to that. A BLT is a sandwich. All of those other things have other names for them. You don't need to call them sandwiches, so you don't have to say a chip buddy. That's a chip buddy. Ice cream sandwich, it has the word ice cream in it. 
if you want to just use the word sandwich, use the things that traditionally are are, are reckoned to be a sandwich. Uh, use words for what they mean, people. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to refute, except that I have to say that I feel like I'm a little more structurally experimental than Robin. Uh, I would I would classify myself as a true neutral. I would say a hot dog is a sandwich. Um, even though, as you say, it's a hot dog. It began in Chicago as hot dog sandwich. So what can I say? Nothing. True neutral. That's where I come down. Right. And this chart also says, also breaks a sub out into a different category. Yeah. Which because subs, subs traditionally are, are, um, a, a U-shaped loaf. They're, they're not, uh, two separate pieces of bread. But again, that's, that's just special pleading as far as I'm concerned. So really, I think that we've ended, uh, this 400th uh, show on something that epitomizes Whenever we answered people's questions, was it that we reject the premise? Premise reject! So, uh, Ken, it's time for us to, uh, uh, of course, as usual, we didn't get through all of the uh, lovely, sleek, and beautiful questions. Uh, but uh, uh, next year, uh, maybe we'll be talking again about how things are kind of back to normal and uh, for our 500. Let's all, let's all hope. Let's, yes, let's cross fingers that it's 2012 Redux. That in the following, <laughs> in, in the year to come, let's hope that the world becomes less like this show. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest design enlists Edgar Allan Poe to celebrate the only failure worth rolling for, interesting failure. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>